Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. This is Jim Rutt. I just want to let folks know that my voice quality in this episode isn't up to our usual high standards. A technical glitch. It's definitely listenable, but just wanted to let you know. Today's guest is Zach Stein, writer, educator, and futurist, working to bring a greater sense of sanity and justice to education. Hey, it's good to be here, Jim. Hey, good to have you back. You know, Zach was on the show just a couple of weeks ago, but as he and I discussed before we started the episode, there's just so much content in his book that we're going to be digging into that we at that time decided it made a heck of a lot more sense to schedule a second interview. And this is where we are, basically halfway through my notes from the first show as we dig into his book, Education in a Time Between Worlds. As usual, links to that book and other resources we discuss will be available on Zach's episode page at jimbrutshow.com. A little bit of review of Zach's background. He studied philosophy and religion at Hampshire College. And as I pointed out last time, he's the third Hampshire College grad we've had on our show. Something interesting going on here. Then he studied educational neuroscience, human development, and the philosophy of education at Harvard University. He's the co-founder of Lectica, a not-for-profit dedicated to research-based, justice-oriented reform of large-scale standardized testing in K-12 higher education and business, and he's consulted with, advised various not-for-profits and for-profits business. So before we get in, like we did last time, we're going to do a little bit of definition and a little bit of framing, and then we'll hop into some of the details. So first, sort of a, a framing comment from your book early on. I don't think we talked about it explicitly last time, but I think it's a good place to start this time, is your idea that, this is a quote, the idea that oppressive and unjust educational systems can undermine the very possibility of humanity's continued existence is urgent. Could you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, this is actually what brought me to the study of civilizational collapse, existential risk, catastrophic risk, and you know, the, what kind of was part of my friendship with Daniel Schmachtenberger and Jordan Hall was basically I, independently of even really knowing there was a field of existential risk research, started to realize that, well, back up. You remember I mentioned last time that intergenerational transmission, teaching and learning, teacherly authority are a species specific trait, which are arguably like via Michael Tomasello, the thing that is really what distinguishes the human from the animal and gets the human up into this domain of cultural evolution and even into a position where it could destroy all life on the planet. So that means that there's something about the necessity of continuity of intergenerational transmission for civilization to keep going. And when a civilization has breakdown, meaning, uh, existential or catastrophic catastrophe. Uh, and what that means is just like massive loss of life, if not loss of all life, which is to say self-inflicted species level extinction of the human. And so I really, I, I had this insight that, oh, geez, like education is actually very serious 
in the way that worrying about nuclear reactors is serious or worrying about existential risks of exponential technology, that it's in that same class of concerns, that if we really mess it up, we could end up kind of initiating a cascade of downstream effects that are actually almost unimaginably bad. And I I talked about the intergenerational warfare last time, but there are other things which are simpler to get, which are tied up in the capabilities crisis. By creating nuclear reactors and creating nuclear waste, we've also created roles and responsibilities within our civilization that require a certain extremely high level of education to just simply do. Uh, and so like, and these are roles and responsibilities that actually humans are going to need to man for thousands of years, <laughs> right? Cause of the half-life of nuclear waste, uh, and the difficulty of kind of managing these massively complex scientific infrastructures. And so what that means is that like, if civilization gets so disrupted economically or through pandemic or et cetera, that we can't actually execute at a very high level, graduating PhD level, basically beyond PhD level nuclear physicists, then we all of a sudden got ourselves in a situation where when a couple of people die, uh, no one knows how to man the nuclear reactor. Um, and then you can just expand that way of thinking about the intergenerational transmission necessary to reproduce social roles uh, and responsibilities just across the board. I'm going to jump back in with a little bit of a slightly obnoxious question, which is you say that oppressive and unjust educational systems can undermine. Suppose it turned out that oppressive and unjust systems were the right way to maintain stability. And what makes you think that they're not? Uh, This gets into just theory of learning. How do people learn? How do, you know, we talk about the limits of growth of an extractive civilization in the biosphere right? That there's only so much you can do to quote unquote nature before you're a self-terminating process. This is also true of quote unquote human nature, that there are limits of the human mind brain uh, in terms of its ability to actually build capacity, motivation, earnest uh, sense-making, a whole bunch of other factors which are actually necessary to do some of these jobs I'm describing, uh, which although you could maybe simulate doing it for a little while with a totalitarian, completely oppressive and unjust educational system in the long run, you would undermine at the level of individual motivation and identity formation, the capacity for that kind of complex skill development. And so you just have to look at the research on how learning works in kids who are growing up in traumatic environments to see that this is true. So, yeah, so this is basically what I talk about as the inefficiency of injustice in my book. Great phrase. Yeah. If you, if you, so it's like in the pursuit of efficiency, we actually create injustices, which then make the whole thing in the long run way less efficient than it would have been if we just had a little bit of mind on what's fair and uh, what's not traumatizing at a very simple level. For the human, which incapacitates them is what I'm arguing. And a few other things. That's also the case that when you start to roll out efficiency infrastructures, and I'm looking at this specifically in terms of standardized testing infrastructures in the school and the efficiency-oriented testing, 
you also start to have to roll out surveillance apparatuses and a whole bunch of other things that become expensive and inefficient um, and also then double down on the destruction of the morale and motivation. So yeah, the general perception that the situation you're in is fair uh, and for learning in particular in childhood, this is very important. Um, uh, you know, I studied John Rawls, as I mentioned last time, and I also studied Lawrence Kohlberg, who were two of the great kind of moral philosophers um, of, uh, you know, post-war America. And it's interesting that fairness, right, is of course the Rawlsian principle that governs a just society. Um, but fairness is also a concept that's discussed on the playground with little kids amongst themselves. And so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a concept that is, you know, basically all the way up and all the way down in the human culture. Uh, you, you find this, this notion and for a educational system to work, the, combination of meritocracy with democracy and egalitarianism needs to be accomplished. And we've been in a situation for a while where there's been a simulation of a meritocracy. And that, again, you can do that for a little while, <laughs> yeah, but you can't sustain that indefinitely because we need to man the nuclear reactors. Uh, so that means in physics departments, we actually need, do need to get something that looks like legitimate teacherly authority and accurate meritocratic award of capacity and effort. And so it's interesting, like my first book was about justice and standardized testing. And I talk about uh, testing a lot in my second book in similar terms, but I'm not, a. I was, you know, Lectico was building standardized assessments. Um, I'm not opposed to assessment. I actually think it's a, it's one of the things that makes social systems work is a sense that we can accurately tell the qualities of people's capacities and be able to distribute rewards in a reasonable way instead of in a, at best, unreasonable, at worst, literally contrived to uh, inequitably distribute you know, based on a variety of factors like who your parents are or what the color of your skin is or things of that nature. So I'm glad you pulled that bit out because what you see is that if we, if we continue down the line that we've been going with the forms of testing and the nature of uh, the human capital driven conceptions of education, we could end up, and I'm arguing maybe we already have, put ourselves in a situation that's actually dangerous from the perspective of the capabilities crisis and the legitimacy crisis <laughs> and the meaning crisis and et cetera. But the meta crisis, the meta crisis, yeah, as we talked about just briefly, just for a reset for the audience, certainly one of the ones I'm most interested in is that as our systems as a society become more and more complex, the stack of dependencies, for instance, to get power to all these houses and to create computer chips to control the grid, et cetera, the level of complexity has risen considerably more rapidly than the capability of humans who are, let's say, voters, right? And so this gap between capability and emerging complexity is what, to my mind, is perhaps the biggest driver of the metacrisis. I mean, every aspect of everything we've talked about can come back to this complexity versus capability curves. I just see them in my mind, right? One's going up linearly, one's going up exponentially. We're fucked. 
And that's why we need a new form of education. Back to fairness, I'd point people to the works of Sam Bowles and Herb Gintis and others, but I happen to know those two guys. And they've done a lot of work on the idea of fairness using simple games all around the world across many cultures. And while they find fairness to be absolutely foundational everywhere and ideas of at least formal, a tit-for-tat style reciprocity to be universal. It's interesting that definitions of fairness vary quite a bit by culture. In some cultures, the idea of altruism seems to be utterly repugnant, particularly hunter-gatherers. seems to be more of an accounting-type fairness. Now, reciprocal altruism, for sure. So, But anyway, so it's interesting to note. Well, that's true of Kohlberg. Yes. And this is the whole point of Kohlberg's work. I should dig into that. I did read Rawls and I found it interesting. And I did actually put myself through the experiment of the veil of ignorance to see what world I would select, which was kind of a fun exercise. But anyway, so let's move on to the next definition. You frame your work to a degree, at least, as social justice. Now, that's a word that can mean a whole lot of things. You know, an Ann Randian might say, you know, social justice is where the makers get the rewards and the takers don't right? I kind of doubt that's what you have in mind when you say social justice. So when you think of your work in education as being based in social justice, what does that mean to you? That's funny because when I wrote the dissertation, the term social justice hadn't quite yet become a pejorative. So if I were to reframe it, I would just say justice because what I'm talking about is actually a very philosophically robust tradition of thinking about moral problems as having cognitive dimensions, which is to say that there are rights and wrongs in reasoning about social problems that are comparable to the rights and wrongs in thinking about a science problem or a problem in you know physics or a problem with the material or causal world. And so I'm, I'm taking a cognitivist view of social justice, like Habermas does, like Rawls does. Rewind a little bit, you get someone like Immanuel Kant. And incidentally, utilitarianism is is a cognitivist view also, which is to say that, yeah, we can figure out what's right and wrong in the social world. It's not a matter of, as some philosophical positions would maintain, emotional or aesthetic preference that the ethical and moral is irrational, and it's only the scientific and material that is rational or cognitive. So that's the first bit. When I talk about social justice, I'm actually talking about justice. I'm actually talking about a very strict form of conversation about what's like, for example, the framing of a constitution of a civilization or society. That's a task that um, is not about protest. It is also not about identity politics. And it's not about a whole bunch of things that get tied up in the social justice pejorative, uh, social justice warrior kind of way of dismissing this. And it's interesting to me, like a whole social analysis of why it is the case that the social justice term became basically used as a, as a pejorative by uh, a variety of groups. You know, many groups, mostly I often agree with what's being said uh, sometimes in the critique of the kind of alt-left, let's call it. But what I'm coming from is actually something quite different. And so, yeah, Rawls is where I would root it. And the original position is probably the best way in, which is, you know, when you're thinking about, let's say, the framing of a constitution, 
of a society or the building of an organization, let's say like a school system, and you're thinking about the standardized testing infrastructure within the school system, whether that infrastructure is kind of just or unjust is a matter of making a kind of thought experiment or decision procedure where you say, basically, if I didn't know who I would be, what capacities I would have, uh, how I would navigate the system, which is to say, I wouldn't know which position in that school system with that standardized testing infrastructure. I don't know if I'd be a, a learning disabled kid, if I'd be a poor kid growing up without parents to help them. I don't know if I'd be a rich kid. I don't know if I'd be smart, right? You don't know who you're going to be. Could you agree to that infrastructure, right? This is what Kohlberg called playing moral musical chairs. This is a very complex form of cognitive perspective taking. And so your notion about fairness showing up in different cultures differently is true. It also shows up in one's lifespan and one's cognitive developmental level differently. You know, the kids on the playground talk about fairness, basically like how many M&Ms and the equal split, perfectly equal split of M&Ms is maybe fair. It's very much in a counting procedure and often with a kind of structural egocentrism. But the moral musical chairs I'm describing is actually a radically decentered view, to use a Piagetian term, the the center of the decision-making is not one's own identity. You're actually trying to take the perspective of everyone within the system and imagine all the possible routes through the system and then think, okay, what I really want to, like, for example, if you're framing the constitution of a society and you have a position where people are slaves, could you really sign off on that constitution not knowing whether or not you'd be a slave, right? So the decision procedure constrains the cognitive operation of thinking about the basic structure of a society. And if something within the society can pass that kind of thought experiment, then there's a good reason to think that it's pretty fair, <laughs> right? Like, so for example, the SAT correlates with socioeconomic status, period. And it very clearly shows that if you have the money to take a test prep course, you will do better on the SAT. So like I couldn't set up a standardized testing infrastructure where if I was poor, I would be systematically disadvantaged in getting access to the meritocratic doors that open from the high standardized test. Now it's another issue of outright cheating. It's also facilitated by money as we've seen with the college admissions scandal. But the point is that you couldn't in good conscience agree to such an infrastructure from the high behind the veil of ignorance. You could say you would make up some stuff to try to kind of like back out of the fact that it is actually unjust. But as Rawls would argue, if we take just the tools of analytical philosophy, logic, game theory, you run game theory from behind the original position and then you have to think. <laughs> actually, it is irrational to agree to that because <laughs> I don't know where I'll be. Yes and no. I actually did a little analysis of Rawls' theory of justice and what he doesn't quite grapple with is that people's risk reward preferences can vary, right? So for instance, if one had a higher utility for being a slave driver than disutility for being a slave, then oddly enough, utilitarian, you know, analytical logic could say, yeah, I ought to be in favor of slavery. And he missed that. At least in theory of justice, he didn't describe it in any depth, at least that I could find. Yeah, we could argue that because that's not entirely true. Then you're not doing the veil of ignorance experiment correctly. Well, you could be. You just have a different perspective on your own preferences, right? That you say, all right, I... You're not supposed to bring your individual preferences 
behind the veil of ignorance, nor believe that you will have those preferences when the ignorance is lifted, mm-hmm. which is to say it's not Zach with all Zach's proclivities and capabilities that gets put somewhere like in a slave position. I don't know what my proclivities will be. Yeah. I don't know if I'll be a tough guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. true enough, true enough. To do the reasoning uh, properly even behind the veil, one needs to relieve oneself of one's personal biases and preferences as much as possible and take the position of basically the generalized epistemic subject. And uh, so that's a very important part of the procedure. So if you model the procedure differently, then yeah, it can be rendered nonsensical, but it's actually quite rigorous. Well, that's a good, a good, I'm going to have to go back and reread that because I was spent days reading it and writing a series of notes. And unfortunately I lost my notes, but I have this very nice rebuttal. But anyway, we'll leave that for another day. Your response is actually good. Now, again, early on in your book, I read something that caused a very strong negative knee jerk. I realized that later on, you know, you aren't actually saying it in the way I initially thought, but I'll read the quote anyway and explain what my knee jerk was. And then we'll pivot to, I think, a very interesting topic. Here's your language. It was very clear that the creation of a new kind of society would require the creation of a new kind of human. Ah, buzzer. Ah. I have long postulated what I call the no new man rule. After 1994, I probably started calling it the no new person rule. You know, and you look at history, some of the worst, you know, heinous crimes of the human race have been couched in terms of we're going to create a new man, right? From the, you know, the excesses of the French Revolution, which was kind of a mixed bag to, you know, darker things like Marxist-Leninism, Nazism, and, you know, perhaps the most extreme form I'm aware of, the Khmer Rouge, who believe we're going to create a new man by brute force, and if we have to kill a third of them, so be it. And yet, of course, as one reads much more deeply in your book, you know, it's vastly more nuanced than that. You know, the way I tend to frame this is kind of thinking about personal change called the new man, a new person, whatever that means, and institutions and the signals that institutions emanate and interact with the persons have to essentially co-evolve together. And at least I took away the sense that you would not disagree with that framing. No, I mean, that's, that's right. And yeah, it's not, I'm actually, it's interesting that phrase. Now I prefer to say a new kind of person rather than a new uh, kind of human. It was John Bervakey who kind of like suggested that. And so, yeah, to create a new kind of civilization, we do need to create a new kind of person or to rethink the nature of personhood. And, and in a sense where we would just be taking responsibility for something that's happening anytime, anyway, whenever we build something fundamentally new, like a new infrastructure you know, like the electrical grid has made us into new kinds of people as had like people who don't know how to start fire (laughs) or harvest wild edibles from the woods. (laughs) Uh, And so there's this sense of, well, yeah, if we, if we're really thinking seriously about something like uh, game B or something like, uh, you know, non-rivalrous kind of civilization, one that's ecologically sustainable and let's say economically equitable and fair to do that. We'd have to remake the basic assumptions of personhood just as they were remade when we exited the pre-modern world and entered the modern world. It's that kind of transformation of the whole notion of what it means to be a person or a human, right? And this is, again, back to the species-specific traits that characterize the human. 
cultural transmission and actually cultural niche creation is tied up in that dynamic of intergenerational transmission. So in fact, the human has always been that self-transforming species. And uh, so we're in a big moment of self-transformation again, which is to the notion of time between worlds. Uh, you know, the French Revolution is an example of the kind of climax of a prior time between worlds. Um, you know, basically this route from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment is one of these periods I've studied a lot, in part because of the great educational philosopher, John Amos Comenius, but also because it has these structural similarities to our own time when there's just a radical world system transformation underway. And along with it, a radical transformation of the basic frameworks and stories and cultural kind of deep code. So yes, yeah, so that's kind of what I mean by new person. And it's interesting that the attempts to use modern biomedical technology to create a new kind of person is actually a way to encode the modern in the personhood forever. You see, so there's a strange paradox here where what I'm talking about is an educational revolution, not a biomedical transhumanist revolution, uh, because that would actually get you what you just said, which is no new human. We'd have the modern human forever. Um, and probably, again, there'd be massive disruption of, its, of intergenerational transmission as a result of deep level biomedical intervention into the conditions of capability and personality development. Um, I think we, we touched on this last time. So yeah, although there's, you know, if you took that quote out of context and we're trying to really stick it to me, yeah, there's these eugenics overtones and the Stalinist overtones and all of that stuff. But in, in fact, it's my position is anathema to, to precisely that way of thinking about the problem. So yeah, I'm glad that you kept reading, even though you had the knee jerk reaction. Goddamn Stalinist, fuck that guy right now. I had had enough, you know, pre-good signal about your work to say, oh, yeah, I'm sure he must not exactly mean that interpretation. I will push back a little bit about the, fr well, not push back, but frame the French Revolution. Because the French Revolution, you know, as you say, was in some sense the capstone of the Enlightenment. But unfortunately, while it had some good effects, it also ended up rebounding and reinforcing authoritarianism. I like to look at the two prior revolutions that ended up pretty much solidly to the good, which was first the glorious revolution in Britain, what was it, 1688 or thereabouts, that ended absolute monarchy, right? Well, that was a pretty damn big punctuation mark. And then, of course, our own American revolution, which formally and in law, and people don't realize this, formally in law, it's in the Constitution, ended feudalism right? Feudalism had been a system in operation for a well, thousand years, more or less, in high form for 500. And we formally ended it. We no longer doffed our hats when the toffs came down the street, etc. And we did that by institutional change, actually, even before the people changed. And I'm sure the same was true in England. You know, it was kind of a abrupt disconnect that for elitist reasons, actually, the glorious revolution occurred and absolute monarchy was abolished. And it no doubt had to have had some downstream effects on humans. 
But of course, in the American Revolution case, the humans had been reforming themselves right on the frontier a long way away from manor and lord in most cases. And so the two kind of work together, the human change on the frontier and, you know, as freeholders and yeomen and small craftsmen independent of anybody, but then it was kind of punctuated and tied together in formal institutions in the form of the U.S. Constitution. So I look to those two as better examples, perhaps, than the French Revolution of the kind of thing we should be thinking about here going forward. I agree, of course. Yeah, you you mentioned it. But yeah, there's a whole string of them. And they're tied to, of course, the founding of the Royal Academy of Sciences. I think that was like 1660 or something uh, in England. And you start to get the independence of sense-making from the church apparatus as well, which is a huge kind of part of the revolutions of modernity. Uh, and then also the standardization of international weights and measures. Um, you know, the French revolution also brought us the metric system, which is interesting <laughs> to think about, um, because this is about the movement out of a medieval feudalistic measurement regime into a modern, um, basically capitalistic measurement scheme, capitalistic and scientific measurement scheme. Uh, and that's again part of what we're in now. You know, my, there's a chapter in the book on measurement, which is, I think, it's my favorite chapter, and it's pointed at this too. That we're, you know, as Benjamin Bratton speaks of, you know, we are at the beginnings of a massively distributed planetary computational stack, which includes a measurement infrastructure that's completely unprecedented in its scope and kind of regulatory capacity. So it's, it's similar that like, you know, the feudal system was a ragtag <laughs> system of weights and measures completely corrupted by the feudal Lords where you'd go to one market and the measures would be this way and another market would be another way. And then of course, with modernity, you get the metric system and you get the lack of divine right fiat to set new measures and the building of international scientific consensus around measurement. And with the move out of modernity into what's next, let's say something like a metamodern, you end up getting this planetary measurement infrastructure of incredible scope um, and also incredible invasiveness and regulatory capacity when you look at the biomedical metrics. And so all of that is just to say that, yeah, there's, there's something afoot which puts us in a similar position to the Americans before the American Revolution, um, but it's <laughs> it's even strange to say that because it's not the founding of nations that we're talking about here. It's something else. It's what comes next, as I like to say. Right? We don't quite yet know what comes next, but it's not a recapitulation of the 18th century nation state. I think we're pretty sure about that. Right. I mean, I think it's an educational revolution and. This is why my interest in Comenius, like many people have never heard of Comenius, but he was a, he was a massively important figure in exactly those days leading up to the American and French revolutions, seeing us through that treacherous 30 years war, this time between the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Comenius was one of the key nodes of intellectual influence. And I can speak a lot about that, but he inspired so much of what came and he argued that it was essentially the transformation of personhood through the transformation of educational systems. So along with the French Revolution and the American Revolution, you get changes in mass public schooling very quickly. 
And that was also one of the things that would have just made the feudal order lords have their brains come out of their ears. Like it was unthinkable <laughs> to want to educate so many people of so many walks of life in so many diverse topics in a systematic way, like funded by the state. Like, come on, before then, as Comenius was like at pains to point out, you know, it was a small number of people who were educated almost entirely in authoritarian religious contexts with brutal physical punishments and learning obscure Latin. Like that was what school was. Everything else happened in the guild system and around the home and in the community of what was necessary. Um, so this move into this, this distinct institution of the school, let alone the large state public school, that was also part of what those revolutions brought us. Uh, which means that we're also looking on the other side of this at a fundamentally different kind of ed educational configuration at the core of what's driving the intergenerational transmission of the civilization. Um, and so that that's kind of what I'm trying to point to, which is what Comenius was pointing to. Now, this Comenius, I've never heard of him, so you'll have to send me a pointer to him so we can include it on the episode page, and I'll go read him myself. Totally, and to give you a sense, like he... You know, Descartes, Rene Descartes, wrote his meditations at Comenius's suggestion. And Rene Descartes has a large manuscript about Comenius's pan-Sophic vision. Pan-Sophie meaning universal wisdom. So Descartes, the Descartes, <laughs> he's inspired by Comenius's vision, writing this whole book on it, which remains, I think, unpublished, but available in the archives somewhere. You know, Comenius was a direct inspiration for the founding of the Royal Academy of Sciences, which I'd already mentioned, which is the kind of institution that we most associate with like, boom, boom the enlightenment happened <laughs> when that first scientific organization is founded. You know, they were inspired by Comenius's vision of a core kind of like center of knowledge creation and knowledge dissemination, uh, which would feed out into a system of public schools, basically. And so there's, of course, a lot more to say there about Comenius and his involvement with the Rosicrucian order, uh, his work with the Bohemian Brethren as a religious figure, um, very complex character. And again, to signal another change, like many people working in that time were, you know, trying to associate with noble lords, feudal lords to get support like Descartes, for example. But Comenius actually ended up in Amsterdam, and he dedicates his most famous uh, book, The Great Didactic, uh, to the Dutch East Indian Company. Right, and now the Dutch East Indian Company was one of those first kind of like seeds of the true capitalist world order that was emerging. And in a way, the education system Comenius was recommending, like this public schooling, this pan-Sophic university, this thing that we eventually turned into something like the modern nation state school system. That is as different from the feudal education system as the Dutch East Indian Company's modus operandi was from the feudalistic economic markets and uh, commodity kind of like trade routes and stuff. So he was well aware where the shifting of the power was going in terms of, you know, new worldview, new economic order, new measurement, metastructure, new educational configurations. Quite a visionary character. And he was from what the region we now call Czechoslovakia. 
And yeah, so that that's a kind of a rabbit hole there. And I've got some work going on with uh, Think Tank Perspectiva, um, although it's not truly a think tank. Uh, it's something much more complex and kind of beautiful. My work with Jonathan Rawson in, in the UK uh, has me working on the on the Comenius historical research. Sounds very interesting. And as you say, at least similar at the turning point to where we are today. So well worth digging into. Let's move along a little bit. One of the things that we didn't talk a tremendous amount about last time, other than my little discursive talk about how I found the educational department at an elite research university rejecting modern cognitive science. Let's turn to your thinking about modern cognitive science, modern cognitive neuroscience, and what relevance or what lessons does it have for us as we're thinking about the new education? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this brings me back to my graduate work in the field of mind-brain education. And uh, I mean, there's a few things I, I, that I can say. Basically, Kurt Fisher, who was my advisor, found a way to, to integrate a lot of the emerging cognitive science into a broader developmental framework. So, you know, when I look at cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience, mostly my concern is with its inadequacy to inform pedagogy because of its lacking of developmental perspective. Now, this isn't universally true, but generally you're getting cognitive science that's done, and especially neuroscience using scanners, where uh, you know the majority of that work is done on sophomores who are in college <laughs> because they're available experimental subjects. Um, you know, when you're looking for informing learning theory, you need to be noting very carefully that the brain of a two-year-old is different from the brain of a five-year-old, different from the brain of a ten-year-old, different from the brain of an eighteen-year-old, different from the brain of a twenty-five-year-old. Like big, important, <laughs> qualitatively distinct neurological identity and cognitive structures. But most cognitive science talks about how the mind works, period. You can't get a theory of learning off the ground with that. Now you can talk about learning of a specific skill, right? Or at a specific age of a specific complexity, but that is learning at the kind of microscopic level. If you're looking at learning over the spans of weeks and months and years, then you'd have a broader way of thinking about human development. Uh, and so Fisher's skill theory, um, which incidentally has as a backbone, the levels that have been codified by Michael Commons as the model of hierarchical complexity. And then I think, uh, you know, in a sense, more importantly, Dawson's work with the electrical assessment system, who she was my mentor uh, for a long time. And there you actually have a sophisticated theory of learning that goes across the lifespan that can actually be turned into an assessment system and used in educational contexts. So yeah, so that's my first reflection is that the work I'm attracted to to inform educational systems is work that's reflectively developmental and looking across the, the lifespan, lifespan development work. And there's important stuff you can get at the level of like principles from neuroscience. So for example, uh, we know that a la Antonio Damasio and one of my colleagues, Mary Helen Imordino Yang, that emotion is inseparable from what we think of as rationality, which is to say that uh, the classic, and back to Descartes, the classic uh, modern split 
Um, but you can find an ancient, of course, philosophy too, with certain forms of stoicism, you know, that you need to get the emotion out of the way in order to think clearly. This is not the case. And learning, for example, without emotion is not nearly as powerful and sticky as learning in an emotionally rich context, which is to say, if you really care about something, you will learn it and it will stick. If you are trying to learn to cram for a test for extrinsic motivation, you will, maybe some of it will stick, but most of it won't. Uh, and so this is important to understand. And that's a very high level principle I'm taking from neuroscience. It's not about like where that happens in the brain, right? It's not like neophrenology induced by access to fancy fMRI scanners, which is also what a lot <laughs> of neuroscience looks like. Yeah, I, I criticize that a lot, right? Say, all right, yeah, just say. Yeah, it's like who cares where it is, man? Like, show me. What it's doing, right? What it's doing. And then they also use functional differentiations in the brain to drive theorizing about cognitive process. Um, but that's ass backwards. So anyway, there's a whole bunch of complex things there, but the question was about learning. And so, yeah, the, the emotional components, what I take away from the neuroscience primarily, um, but also that learning takes a while, um, which is to say that you know, because of the emotional processing necessary to actually do, for example, moral reasoning, this is Mary Helen Mordino Yang's work, that if you're forced to reason about a moral problem in a very short amount of time, uh, you don't actually have a chance to do the kind of emotional processing necessary to actually move through the, the kind of the, the data of the different kind of considerations, which in part are emotional. Uh, and so that's another thing to take, I think, also from the neuroscience, but again, at the level of principle, not even at the level of like finding that the, the trend of the findings is showing us that uh, learning is emotionally laden and the emotion cannot be ignored in learning. So that's, that's one tip there. But in, in general, I orient to the cognitive developmental uh, work to orient my learning theory. Uh, and you know, you spoke with Hansi Freinach, and I assume you spoke about the levels of hierarchical complexity that he works with. We did. But yeah, part of organizing a coherent future for education is basing it on the kind of science that's, uh, that's appropriate for understanding how teaching and learning works. So yeah, I appreciate the question. Yeah, let me point to a book I just finished reading. Actually, I started reading it before I read your book, and I finished reading it after. It's called How We Learn by Stanislas Dehaney, I think you pronounce it. It's a French, very eminent cognitive neuroscientist. And he does all the things that you say that the neuroscientists don't do, right? He focuses tremendously all the way back to prenatal. And you know, between he and his wife, they, they've worked with lots of babies and scanners and things of that ilk. And in addition to emotion, which, again, I agree is very important, and Damasio is one of my central thinkers about the science of consciousness. And then I always point to his book, The Feeling of What Happens. Well worth reading for anyone who really wants to understand who and what we are. But Haney really comes down strongly, and I found it very convincing that we're not paying anywhere near enough attention in education to attention. We're not paying attention to attention. I think he actually says that. And particularly, he goes in quite depth on one of the things that makes humans different than other animals. And I believe you may have mentioned this, I don't recall, is so-called shared attention. Exactly. Something that even 
apes aren't so good at. And he then generalizes that to something quite similar to what I would call your teacherly authority. He called it the pedagogical stance, which is a kind of relationship. Most of his focusing is on very young children, you know, two years old or under, and how the young Homo sapiens seems to have built in the ability to go into a pedagogical relationship with someone who is in the pedagogical stance, usually a parent or caregiver, and imitate them in certain ways, follow their gaze, make some surprisingly powerful scientific style Bayesian inferences about what's real by analyzing how the pedagogical person is responding, etc. And so I, I found that very interesting. And of course, he had some practical things like ones that just strike me as common sense. Get those fucking cell phones out of the classroom. What the hell is anybody thinking? Allowing someone to bring a cell phone into the classroom. And he talked quite a bit about the need for and why great teachers are able to capture and hold the student's attention, right? And so anyway, I would point to that book as doing many of the things that you rightfully critique some neuroscience for skipping. Totally. And that, yeah, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a coincidence. I mean, Dehane was involved with the founding of the Mind Brain Education Society, as, as was I uh, at Harvard when I was there uh, with Kurt Fisher, Howard Gardner, and other folks. And so, yeah, there's an emphasis in those initial conversations about the field of educational neuroscience, specifically Kurt Fisher's kind of guidance to that emerging field having to do with not making the mistakes I just kind of <laughs> rattled off, which is do lifespan work, like get kids at different ages um, and consider intersubjectivity, right? Which you're calling joint attention or shared attention. Consider that, you know, so there's a lot of focus on the student brain the learning brain, but there's also something happening in teachers. Uh, Antonio Batro studied the teaching brain. <laughs> and so the joint attentional situation, it's two distinct roles, you know, um, and they are neurologically distinct, but then the two brains are actually in a kind of resonance essentially. Um, so, and that's kind of like work that has been emerging for maybe the past five to eight years in terms of like people thinking in a more complex and developmental way about both the the developing brain and cognitive capacities and the fact that that developing brain and cognitive capacities, those are held in a social context. Um, and so I'm glad to see Dehane also focusing on the what Tomasello noted, which is what I noted that, yeah, this joint attentional situation is truly unique in the animal world. And that's the core, it's like the primordial core of the possibility of teacherly authority resides in, in that. And it's there in the child and in the parent, so long as the parent hasn't been confused by social media and self-help books about how to be present with children. There is an instinctual awareness. Incidentally, there's an instinctual awareness of the levels of development that I was discussing. You know, attentive adults speak differently to teenagers than they do to, you know, 10 year olds than they do to two year olds. You just moderate the complexity of your language. <laughs> so there's, there is insight already preexisting in the life world as to the kinds of social relationships that make for good, uh, educational relationships. Um, yeah, Stanislaus Dehane's work on numeracy in the brain is actually really deep and fascinating. I think his book's called the number sense. And you see there that there's basically mathematics does not reside 
in the world or in your brain. <laughs> Mathematics resides in the relationship between your brain and the world. And your brain basically has been uh, evolved to distill extremely abstract principles of mathematics from uh, the regularities of the physical world. But there's also something internal to the state of the nervous system that's involved. It's not just the world imprinting mathematics on the brain. It's the brain constructing and distilling mathematics from the world of the laws of mathematics. And so I asked a once basically like, is there something similar in the moral, right? Which is to say, because I remember I said moral questions are cognitive questions. There's right or wrong. Is it the case that the invariance of the moral world, the invariance of the life world that's relevant to fairness, justice, uh, authenticity, um, self-actualization, a whole bunch of factors, just like we extract the invariance of the physical world through our number sense, is it the case that we actually can extract the invariant universal features of the moral world, the social world, um, in a similar way? And uh, Dehane said he didn't know, but he thought probably it was true. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he's done work, and I haven't explored his work in a long time. I'm excited to be uh, talking about it, actually. I'm going to look into it. But I think he did do some experiments, as did Mary Helen and Mordino Yang, on the affective or emotional neuroscience of moral judgment and um, complex kind of ethical and identity considerations. So I'd look into that as well, because it, it kind of backs up this idea that the Rawlsian conception of fairness, and let's say we, we tweak it out and we fix it up and make it make an even more solid thought experiment to address your concerns, but that something like that is a structure that is as real uh, as the things we know about mathematical structures. Uh, and so that means that just like if we get the math wrong, shit's going to break. If we get, <laughs> if we get those dimensions of the social world wrong in our design, it's also going to break. Um, and this is back to the, could we build a totalitarian education system and actually reproduce the civilization in perpetuity? No, we couldn't because we, we basically cooked in the wrong math, moral mathematics to the, you know, the moral universals to the, to the basic design of the thing. So it'll break just like if we make a nuclear reactor and don't do the right computer code. So that's a little bit more on Dehane. His work is, is fascinating. Uh, and I also mentioned Mary Helen Mordino Yang, who's also, she works closely with Damasio, kind of bringing his work down into the uh, educational spaces. Um, uh, really interesting stuff. And one more thing to pull out, which is this notion of imitation, which you mentioned, which is a ubiquitous part of the joint attentional situation that we're kind of discussing here. And it's very interesting to note that the mechanism of imitation, uh, also arguably at the level we do at a species-specific trait, was identified very early as the kind of core of psychological development and learning uh, by uh, James Mark Baldwin. Um, before him, there were others who had toyed with it, but he brought it forward um, in the you know, in the eighteen, I think, seventies or eighties. But what I want to note here is that that Baldwinian notion. James Mark Baldwin is most well known for the Baldwin effect in biology, but he was actually a brilliant psychologist and inspiration to Jean Piaget and others. But the Baldwinian notion 
uh, of imitation was taken up both by Lacan and by Girard, René Girard, right? So there's actually this way to bring these notions of joint attention and imitation up into very deep conversations in the psychoanalytical and the mythological and cultural, as with Girard, mimetic desire, and a few other things that he works with in his kind of beautiful system are actually rooted in this Baldwinian notion uh, of imitation. Um, Pierre Genet, I think, uh, also the famous uh, French psychologist who was an inspiration to Baldwin. So there's something, again, deep about the nature of personhood that we're talking about here, where we are the teaching and learning species. And we are that species which kind of makes its living <laughs> in the space between the elder and the youth, right? Absolutely. That the joint attentional situation with the kind of like accoutrements of imitation wedded to these levels of development give us the potential to be extremely kind of uh, organically uh, malleable and interrelated with one another in our in our cultures. So there's something kind of, uh, I don't know, I almost wanted to say like tender at the core of the human. Even though, as Gerard points out, it kind of ricochets up into violence, that takes a while to get going. Like it begins actually with you and your mom and you and your siblings and other places where you actually kind of learn what it means to be a person. And so one of the concerns I have, again, back to the educational metacrisis, is that screen culture runs interference on a lot of those processes. And the breakdown in teacherly authority we discussed some last time also is contributing to the kind of desertification of our <laughs> kind of cultural resources, um, which is to say that that kind of joint attention that Dehane's Dehane uh, uh, is describing is becoming a scarce resource, and you know, just like we're going to run out of oil or something, <laughs> uh, or we're going to run out of uh, you know water in some places, uh, we're also running out of um, teacherly authority, uh, and we're running out of the, the 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 kinds of containers in which we can actually safely imitate and safely teach. So yeah, I'm kind of keep circling back to that notion of the matter. That's huge, hugely important. Let me tell you an aha I had, and I think it was stimulated by both you and Dehane, and it was all about shared attention or joint attention. And that was, hmm, educational technology. Maybe we're going down absolutely the wrong path with screens, and maybe we should be thinking about robots right? Because a robot, you know, look at the work on Kismet at the MIT Media Labs, is there's no doubt that we can build robots that actually are more extreme in their ability to do gesturing and eye tracking and raised eyebrows and use of the hands, etc., to capture human attention and probably require a lot better software than Kismet had, but could perhaps at some point get in this joint attentional stance and use all these probably deep cognitive neural hooks to help, particularly for early childhood education, establishing that pedagogical stance or that teacherly authority between the technology and the subject in a way that is much more rooted in our human nature. 
And I'm actually going to pass that idea along to some friends of mine who have a robotics and AI company and see what they might do with it. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> I mean, because it's like, why the hell would you want a robot teaching little kids when you could have well, people do it? Because you can scale it. That would be the argument. But, but why would you, and why would you want to simulate joint attentional experience instead of actually having joint attentional experience? Ah, uh, now we could go into a we could go into a long philosophy about AI there, and if one believes in but strong it, it AI, be long, it's, but I don't think it needs to be long. It's just as long as the kid knows it's a robot, then it's not a joint attentional situation. The kids quickly stop thinking it's a robot and think it's alive, right? If it's got any good reactions at all, and you know, look at the work on Kismet. It's amazing how closely the people became emotionally engaged with this robot that was specifically designed for emotional engagement. So I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not saying that you couldn't make a very powerful attention capture education replacement. Like you could, but why do that? Like people are becoming obsolete in manufacturing jobs because of robots. It's those are exactly the people who should be teaching their kids. Uh, so it's just one of these things where it's like, just because we could do that doesn't mean we should do that. And plus it's, you know, if the robot's doing a job of teaching the kid, it would eventually teach the kid that it's a robot. <laughs> and so it would, it would be leading the kid up into the most reasonable objective view of his situation. And that situation is that you're being taught by a robot and the robot was programmed by someone uh, and it's not making choices or sharing in the moral uh, universe that you're in. If you destroy the robot, you know, you'd probably owe somebody some money, but you probably wouldn't go to jail for murder. Uh, and uh, so I, I just think these kinds of ways of thinking about it, educational technology are mostly not good. Like the way I propose that educational technology be used is to clarify time and skill sharing networks and facilitate pop-up classrooms in which humans are actually together doing things. The machines can house massive inventories of resources that can be rapidly searched and brought to bear in a pop-up classroom. Uh, you can use things like Zoom to have synchronous conversations across the world, but then you can also use things like Zoom to have groups of people meeting where five people are in a room and then a Zoom call hooks another five people. So my goal with educational technologies is actually to use them to scaffold better in-person examples of teacherly authority, not to use educational technology to run interference and complicate our ability to actually be together in space and time exercising true teacherly authority and then replacing actual teacherly authority of person to human teacherly authority, replacing that with a simulation of teacherly authority so that we understand education is basically sitting in front of a screen all day, uh, which is what's happening now. Uh, basically, and that's the notion of what it should be. Whereas I'm suggesting something quite different that the screen itself is not the main event, that the main event in education remains other people, that the screen needs to be the thing that facilitates the coming together of people and the orchestrating of the informational resources and, you know, all kinds of amazing things that can be done where we share joint attention around something like, for example, the screen, as opposed to me being alone, sharing joint attention with a computer, which actually doesn't have attention. So that's me alone with a computer.
So that's that notion of it's not the me and the machine. It's me and the teacher with something, possibly a screen, but most likely something that the screen put us in touch with, like a particular part of our city or a particular uh, researcher at a university or a master carpenter or something, right? That the complex time and skill sharing networks uh, along with, you know, developmentally curated uh, inventories of curricula uh, and a whole bunch of other dynamics which require the digital, which couldn't have happened before the digital. This is what the technology should be for. But uh, I think uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, market forces, uh, cultural confusions and other things, we're thinking about educational technology mostly as fancier things we can do when people are alone in front of their computers. And uh, whole charter schools are set up where kids work in cubicles at computers all day. I hate that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so my, and this is maybe I'm a Luddite, you know, maybe I'm a Luddite, but I think it's, it's based in the psychological research, you know, like, as I said, this is something about the, the way the, the nervous system and biology and identity of the human as we've known it has worked. This is how teaching and learning has taken place. Um, so the idea that uh, we could figure out how that works and then build a robot that can simulate it really well. Um, I'm like, well, why do that? <laughs> Except to get attention from scientific community or to make money. Like if you really care about children, you would be trying to find ways to get children to be with, you know, really responsible, intelligent, uh, careful adults. Maybe there's not enough of them. That would be the argument. I mean, again, it's funny. A lot of the, you know, your arguments I buy about screens don't necessarily apply about, you know, a high-end robot with, you know, serious pushing the edge of human capability AI. Like, for instance, attention. I've actually created a robotic deer that runs around in a virtual world and actually has attention and has sort of a rudimentary consciousness. It turned out it wasn't even hard. And so one could take what we know about you know, how the brain works, how consciousness actually works as a cerulean mechanism and uh, actually develop something like that. And, you know, to your point, yes, probably not as good as the best teachers in the world, but I mean, let's be realistic, you know, skill is on some sort of statistical distribution and, you know, perhaps in terms of the actual quality of the joint attentional experience for many kids, it would be better with the best possible robot, you know, available in the year 2030 or something like that. So I'd like to ask you to open your mind up at least a little bit about the robot as a possible way to achieve what you're talking about, but it would require, you know, deep work and, you know, at both pedagogy and neuroscience, and of course, probably advances in software, which we don't yet have. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it'll probably will happen, but yeah, it's odd. It strikes me as odd. So next we're going to talk about something you go into and it's, I just found it very interesting was a view you ended up presenting as a four quadrant model but you started off by looking at Habermas's world view of the subjective world, the intersubjective world, and the objective world. That then led you, I believe you repurposed this from other thinkers, into a four-part space. And your point, which I thought was very interesting, was that when considering an educational system in particular, but perhaps more broadly into cultural challenges as well, you needed to process through the four quadrants in parallel. Could you unpack that quite a bit? 
Totally. Yeah, the, the four-quadrant model comes directly from uh, Ken Wilber's work, and he was synthesizing thinkers like Habermas and others uh, on the edges of the complexity sciences, actually, who were grappling with basically the multidimensionality of complex human systems. And so we'd already been touching on this uh, when I was talking about the brain science work. And you know, the essential insight of the four quadrants is that when you're looking at any social phenomenon, you need to look at it, you know, not from one, let's say, disciplinary perspective or one basic perspective, such as neuroscience. So like if a kid has problems paying attention in school, I could simply look at it from what's called the upper right quadrant, which would just be his brain. It's the it's called the exterior of the individual, right? The lower right quadrant is the exterior of the collective. So I could say, well, okay, it's his brain and it's the infrastructures that surround the school, the exteriors of the collective or the buildings, the food systems, the air pollution, the bus routes, things of that nature. So now I'm saying, oh, the brain is being poisoned or something by the air pollution and the air quality in the school. And so now I've got a scientific third person view of a causal system that's causing this kid not to have attention. Um, but that's just the right-hand quadrants. You also have the interior of the individual and the interior of the collective, which is to say the personality and consciousness of the child and the culture and norms of the school. Uh, so you could also say, okay, in combination with some neurological thing that's complicated by the infrastructure, you also have an identity which has a self-understanding, right? What's the kid's academic self-concept? Do they think they're a learner? Have they been traumatized? And Or are there good reasons they're not paying attention? Are they actually interested in something else? You'll never know unless you talk to them. You can't talk to their brain. Uh, you have to talk to them. And then, of course, there's the culture of the school. Maybe it's the case that, in fact, the teachers are systematically uh, more or less checked out and don't care about the kids. And the kids themselves are so busy with you know, their phones and other things due to the lack of cultural norms at the school around phone use that no one's paying attention. And it's not this kid's problem, it's the culture of the school. But actually all four of those are the case, <laughs> right? And they're all interrelated. They're all actually inter-included, which is to say that the identity formation is not separate from the infrastructure which compromises the capacity of the nervous system to act right. And if all the kids are in that same milieu, then of course you're going to have problems uh, putting the norms in place uh, at the school to get the culture. And then with the, as the culture degrades, then the identity degrades. And then, then so you get this very complex system, but it's more than a causal system. It's not merely a causal system. It is also a system of intentionality, choice, and intersubjectivity. Um, and so that's the key thing to get is that a lot of complexity science work focuses on the right-hand quadrants. It looks at complex dynamical systems as complex causal systems. And that's huge advance over looking at the external world as a complicated causal system, right? So using that distinction with the complicated and the complex, that we do want to move from modeling things in a complicated way to a complex way. But then we also need to move in modeling them in terms of the left-hand quadrants, as the integralists say, which is to say, 
not just the causal systems, but also the systems of intentionality, choice, and again, intersubjectivity or joint attention. And this is part of the issue with the robot, right? That the robot's a causal system, doesn't make choices, doesn't have intentionality, can't share joint attention, right? It's a causal system. Now it can simulate a choice-based system, but it's not, it's a causal system. If it's working correctly, it's almost perfectly determined causal system. And so that's kind of important uh, to note that one of the misunderstandings with the notion of artificial intelligence itself is missing this distinction between causality and choice. And I know you talked to Forrest Landry, and so I'll defer to his authority here, that the distinction between causality and choice is actually a primordial one. And in in education, it's extremely important. Back to the designing versus raising children, which was raised last time, you can actually approach education itself as if it's a causal problem. You can medicalize academic underperformance. And you can, uh, you know, so strictly routinize curriculum delivery that you get a school running like a complicated machine, right? Rigorous objective standardized testing. Yeah, yeah, what I call the sausage factory. In fact, that's become the term of art in game B is we say we are not going to send our kids to the sausage factory. Right. And now you throw in biomedical infrastructure, right? And so you get this massively complex way of modeling a very complicated causal system. And I'm saying that's exactly half of what's actually there. There's also the choice making and identity structures of the children and all of the conditions and qualities of the shared attention and intersubjectivity that arises between them. Uh, And that's a whole space all its own. Now there are fields that look at that stuff. We mentioned Kohlberg, developmental psychology, anthropology, gets stuff at the lower left, cultural sciences, hermeneutics, things of that nature. And uh, we talked about last time, I'm going to toss this back. I don't really know much about the Wilburian analysis, but when you talk about intersubjectivity, that brings to mind, you know, my comment from last time that I frankly think I learned more at recess than I did in the classroom, right? Because there I was, you know, learning how to deal with other people, how to lead, how to follow, you know, how to execute strategies, right? All kinds of things that are meaningless except in conjunction with other people. Totally. And this is to, remember with Dehane, I said, you know, is there a way that the brain has actually evolved to extract invariance from the social world and eventually bring that all the way up into a complex understanding of how basically ethics work. And that's what the playground provides the rudiments for. It's an unstructured social environment in which the interactions of the children allow for the kind of like, over time, the generalization of, oh, here's how people work. Here's what feels fair. Here's what emotion looks like. Here's what conflict looks like, right? Here's what is the generator function of conflict. (laughs) Here's what love looks like. Here's the generator functions of love. You start to see and the brain, we can trust the nervous system in a healthy cultural context to begin to move towards those generalizations that are net beneficial to everyone involved. And this is the kind of trajectory or telos of cognitive and ethical development as mapped by Piaget and Kohlberg. You know, just like you can trust a kid to walk, right? Like you don't have to send your kid to a state trained specialist with, you know, education department approved curricula to walk, 
right? Walking, it just happens because of the joint attentional space and the processes of imitation um, and the affordances of the, of the nervous system. A lot of learning has that quality where you just need to put the nervous system and identity structure in the right environment, such as trying to organize a kickball game at recess, and it will learn. It's built to learn, right? It evolved to learn. Uh, and, and so again, this is, uh, yeah, part of what the, what sometimes called the interior sciences, the ones that study the left-hand quadrants, right? Subjectivity, intersubjectivity. Um, you know, that is some of the most important stuff that needs to be considered in education. Uh, whereas the sharp end of the stick in education reform tends to be the right-hand quadrants, right? The standardized tests. And now the medicalization procedures, which reduce the culture and the subjectivity to the brain and the kind of like learning outcomes, which are objective, you know, measure of systemic efficiency. So, so yeah, the four quadrants are extremely useful heuristic and I was applying them there to education, which I do in the book, but they can be used to analyze many number of social phenomena. Climate change has all those dimensions. Uh, pandemics have all these dimensions. So it's a, it's a general heuristic to basically counteract the tendencies towards reducing all questions to the right-hand quadrants, which is to say reducing all questions to to questions about material causal systems. Um, and it's not that there aren't material causal systems, there absolutely fucking are. <laughs> and we need to figure out exactly how they work, but then we also need to figure out how people work, how identity formations work, uh, how the structure of choice, the integrity of choice. Uh, and then also in culture, we need to figure out what are the you know, mimetic and symbolic and mythical agreements that actually are the water we're swimming in, which kind of quote unquote supervene on all of these infrastructures and computational matrices and nervous systems. Um, so it's, it's really kind of like taking the complexity science view and trying to deepen it to include a much more articulate kind of hearing from the sciences of consciousness and psychology and the anthropology, cultural studies, things of that, of that nature for a, you know, an omni considerate or integral or comprehensive view, as opposed to just a, uh, you know, basically complexity science, reductive view, subtle reductionism. You know, it's not reduction to the Newtonian, billiard ball, complicated universe. It's a, it's an actual increase above that, right? So it's not reductionism in that simple sense, but it's still a subtle reductionism because it's not grappling with the reality of the interiors. Though, let me be fair here to complexity science, push back for my team, that one of the main tools that's used in complex systems research is called agent-based modeling. And I happened to go to a scientific meeting on the topic. Some of the very best people in the world in January, right before the virus hit. And the cutting edge is to put more and more emulation, at least, of things like state of mind, perception, emotions, communications even. Sometimes the agents can have languages or they can even evolve languages. So I would say that complexity science is well aware that, you know, the simplistic late 80s, early 90s, 
complexity that arose from deterministic chaos, which was essentially the bridge from the Newtonian world to the complex world, is by no means the last word on the topic, and that many, probably most modern complexity thinkers who are thinking about social systems, at least, are thinking about your left side and are looking for tools to probe on that. Yeah, no, and, and I'm, I'm, of course, I'm aware of this work, and and it is true. It's a massive improvement. It's a massive improvement. But, you know, then one must ask what the, basically, I would call what, you know, what are the meta-psychologies that orient the assumptions behind the agent-based modeling, right? And so, you then you get into how much are we in a sophisticated way, modeling the psyche, or have we actually reduced it to something that looks a lot more like a complex causal system? Um, so this is about grappling with the true indeterminacy of choice. Um, and again, back to, the, to the, the developmental view, there's actually not one psyche. This is the big kind of concern with, for example, using game theory to think about the, the way the human mind works is that kids don't run game theory. <laughs> like you have to be a formal operational thinker to do the machinations of game theory, which doesn't come until basically you're an adolescent if you're lucky. So there's also this kind of like polyvocality of the human psyche, which adds to the anthro complexity of the modeling efforts and the agent-based modeling. And so I know people are moving towards solving those problems. Um, but I'm kind of like, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a tendency towards making problems that shouldn't be solved using mathematical models to want to use mathematical <laughs> models to solve them. Yeah, that certainly, that certainly is a, a bad attractor. I think the people in the field are aware of it. And what's quite interesting is now in the most recent based agent-based modeling work, there's a lot of heterogeneity of models. It used to be all, right, all the agents are the same. Well, we know that all the kids aren't the same or all people aren't the same or even all sociopaths aren't the same. So let there be differences and maybe even evolutionary differences. But let's move on to another important topic. I think this was very, a very good probe. And that is, you say, I'll read the actual words, education is also in primarily an ethical and cultural challenge concerning the meaning-making of individuals and groups. I would not disagree with that, but I would then ask the question, who decides and how? I will throw a little personal history in here as I did a little bit more in the first episode, but I'll do a little bit here. When I was a kid in you know, primary education in the first half of the 1960s, you know, we still were required to say the Lord's Prayer every day, and us allegedly good Catholics knew not to say the goddamn Protestant final verse of it. You know, it was quite a little thing, right? We also had to say the Pledge of Allegiance, and I would say that our civics was very conventional, status quo, anti-communist, right? You know, this was a whole series of decisions somebody made. Who decided? Somebody decided to make a state alert, Lord's Prayer, Pledge of Allegiance, and to worship militant anti-communism. And I was at least lucky I didn't have Bible study. You go another 50 miles south, and Bible study would have been uh, part not. I mean, I like the Bible, actually. A militant atheist I may be, but I find both the Old Testament and the New Testament wonderful literature, but they didn't teach it as literature, unfortunately. So, Let's take as a given ethical and cultural nature of meaning-making in individuals and groups is something education has to be, but who decides on the content? I mean, this is probably one of the deepest questions in educational philosophy, 
right? So there's so many questions about, you know, how to equitably distribute educational resources, how to make large school systems function well, how to deal with, uh, you know, gap between who has access to technology and who doesn't have technology, debates about standardized testing, like debates about standards. There's all these things, but that's all basically like content delivery system. The question of what is the content and the quality of the content, that's this problem at the heart of curriculum studies. So people like Michael Apple, who does great work in the critical sociology of curriculum studies. And, uh, and at the end of the day, at least now, it boils down to a set of large interests around textbooks publishing. Like that's one of the places where this has been hashed out because at the end of the day, you're looking at education being about, at least as we've known it, modern nationalistic kind of like large scale education. You know, it's been about the creation of official knowledge, right? And this is the root of the issue around teacherly authority is how the who like who gets to decide what the official knowledge is and so one way to get at this question you're asking is that well we need to change not the nature of the content that we provide but change the way we make decisions about which content we provide um, so i wouldn't say that there's one group of people that decides but i would say that we need to formulate new processes to even think about what counts as kind of like the core of an educational system. You know, and it, it's worth noting that, you know, the, the American school system has always actually been more differentiated almost to the point of fragmentation in terms of what's taught. So like if you go to f France and of course, places like China, the, the state curriculum is extremely clear and kind of issued from the capital. In the United States, we've always had kind of a state's rights thing with regard to education. And even at the level of a township, you're getting variation in what's taught. Um, and so, you know, most of my thinking around this has to do with maintaining the virtue of having local decisions made about the quality and content of what's taught, but having these local decisions be kind of like conducted in such a way that the process assures a certain kind of number of, let's say, baseline requirements. And so it's another way of handling the problem of standards, but talking about standards as a kind of like a discursively redeemed community practice, as opposed to a centralized uh, authoritarian mandate. But of course, this requires things like my social miracles and other aspects that would allow communities to actually have the time uh, and teachers in particular and other folks that there would be much more professional and collaborative community orientation around just what are we teaching our kids about the world? Like what, what do we do? Like it's, it's a deep question because um, as I've been saying repeatedly, like the educational function of the society is like the auto poetic function of the society. So if a society is self-terminating, which is to say, if the society knows that it's not working well, <laughs> then it should actually really question exactly what you're saying, right? What do we teach the next generation? Obviously what we've been doing hasn't worked. Um, so we actually 
it's hard for us to imagine like that we know what the kids need to know to fix this mess that we've created. Um, so it becomes this complicated negotiation about what of the existing culture is actually worthy of being preserved, right? Like I do a thought experiment on a book that I call the Nuos Ark to talk about the Old Testament, right? Not Noah's Ark, but the Nuos Ark, N-O-U-S. And this is a educational thought experiment uh, where you're basically trying to distill down just how deep this question is in curricular studies. And I, something like this, you know, if we were facing catastrophic civilizational collapse and we were tasked with basically creating a seed bank of ideas, right? So not a, not a seed bank. Well, we'll need that too. We'll need a seed bank to actually plant crops on the other side of this thing. But what if we needed to create a seed bank that would allow us to reboot civilization on the other side of this, right? So that's actually the question you're asking when you're asking about curricular studies. You're actually asking, what is the knowledge that is requisite to recreate the person, right? To recreate the civilization. How do we think about it at that deep a level? And it's interesting because it constrains your thinking a lot because you obviously, if, as I mentioned, we're in a failing civilization, then we precisely can't hand on a lot of the things that we take for granted that we would need to, uh, boil down to the most essential, those things, which could be kind of like put at the center of intergenerational transmission. So, so back from the thought experiment to the concrete situation today. So my sense is that as the digital continues to reform education, and I don't mean reform in like policy sense, I mean, literally the new forms, like in a McLuhan-esque sense, we're getting a new way of information exchange and scaffolding of educational experience and teacher-student interaction. As the digital continues to do that, there, there must emerge some innovation at the level of educational content curation. Um, uh, and so this gets back to how could you have community level decisions about what gets taught that's meaningful and kind of like world world making sense, making identity, making stuff at the heart of the schooling. How could we have that be a local decision, but also be carried out via a process that is universal and that assures a certain quality. And so this is what I mean by in the context of the kind of digital explosion of education and the, and the relocalization that's already occurring as a result of the pandemic kind of shutting of the schools and booting up a classroom in every living room. You know, there's this question about, yeah, deep innovations in the curation of educational content um, and getting that to be part of collective sense-making as opposed to part of an authoritarian apparatus. And the authoritarian state-based kind of a centralized curriculum, that's exactly the stuff that's that, that ended up backfiring and undermining all teacherly authority. Like it's exactly your experience <laughs> with like, who the hell decided I have to say this shit every morning? It's exactly that experience and maybe that your generation had, which led to a profound questioning of all sources of teacherly authority. So this question of who decides what gets taught, that's exactly the question that catalyzes the renegotiation of educational authority and the uh, innovation in the curation of educational content. Um, 
and you know it's it's i think a deeper more imminent more pressing problem than most people realize because they hold schools as somehow sacrosanct as if the signal sent by the school could overwhelm in the mind of the adolescent the signal being sent by their screens in the palm of their hand right so like when you're looking at the conversations about let's say pandemic conspiracies and then you're looking at kids who are supposed to be in biology class learning about biology right you're you're looking at qAnon and kids in history class right <laughs> like 15 16 17 year old boys and so there ends up being this question of like mm, geez you know the situation with teacherly authority is quite acute and until we get some reasonable discourse taking place within public view and especially of within view of the children about why they're learning such and such and why such and such is actually valid knowledge and what valid knowledge actually means it's like you know there's no way out i think of the kind of downward spiral that seems to be unfolding uh in the current historical moment there's no way out without renegotiating teacherly authority and and the concern is that and this is why many on the left and the right fear across the aisle that either side would lock down into some new authoritarianism and that fear comes because of the discomfort of the experience of the absence of teacherly authority and in that absence you will basically as soon as one appears that could potentially kind of like close that loop and step into the vacuum of teacherly authority that you'll take the first thing that's even, even seemingly viable just to stop the discomfort and chaos of not having someone who knows what to do uh and so that's that's kind of like the risk of not resolving the teacherly authority crisis in a reasonable way is that we will resolve the crisis of teacherly authority in an unreasonable way <laughs> uh and you know and it could go left or right like you know the blue church loves preemptively resolving teacherly authority crises around a lot of things in the biomedical space and of course the right revels in kind of undermining teacherly authority systematically um and uh you know kind of in sometimes like replacing education with a kind of a spectacle or entertainment so yeah so that's that's some again the, the potency of this question of the absence of teacherly authority is in part because it's uncomfortable which means that we're looking for a way to resolve it and whether that means that google all of a sudden fact checker becomes <laughs> the official new uh way to run inquisitions uh or whether it becomes the continual kind of like locking of commitments to a view based on aesthetic and emotional pr preferences which is the right kind of like fascist model where it's actually the emotional and aesthetic attraction to the idea that is why you hold it as opposed to the appeal to some like omniscient centralized blue church authority like google so it's complicated and it this question of who decides is exactly right um and my answer is everybody has to decide <laughs>
with that. Yeah, so, yeah but, but it's a goddamn problem, right? Because as we know, you know, if we said today, who decides and absolutely no sense of attempting to constrain that, you know, in West Texas, they would definitely say climate change is a hoax, you know, you know, in Wellesley, Massachusetts, they'd say there's no such thing as gender, right? It's, it, nonsense would proliferate, at least in our current environment. And we're going to get to this on the next episode. We're going to not do it this episode. We're going to talk about the 13 miracles that maybe get us to a point where we can make sense of the world. But today, we don't seem to have anything like good sense making at the local level. Absolutely correct. And that's why, in a sense, my ideas seem utopian. And they're concrete utopians, what I call them, because they're reasonable things to think about what what could be possible in the future. But yeah, right now, if we were to radically distribute teacherly, well, basically we're looking at what happens when you radically distribute teacherly authority without some sense of a kind of uh, hidden universal. And that's really the key, which is to say that, you know, it is possible uh, in educational relationships and educational context to build structures of interaction and reflection that wouldn't get us stuck in these cul-de-sacs of reactive, basically belief formation. And, you know, so the idea that people in West Texas would reject evolution is absolutely true. And the root of that is, of course, the meta crisis, the educational crisis, like that that we don't know how to consider scientific research. It, that's an incapacity, <laughs> right? That's a socially induced incapacity on the part of those people. Uh, and similarly with the folks in Wellesley, right? And so it's not so much about changing education to change what people think. The goal here is to change how people think. And that means basically how people speak and interact in serious contexts. So the hope would be that, you know, yeah, collective sense-making would need to be spread through uh, educationally intensive process. I don't know exactly what it looks like, um, but I do know that it's not asynchronous text-based exchanges in a place like Facebook, that it needs to be, as I've been emphasizing, actually embodied joint attentional experience. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a need to like disentangle in a sense, the dysfunctions that have arisen in the past 10 years as a result of the kind of digital interference and, and capture of communication channels um, from those things that are actually deep ideological centers rooted in personality and articulate preference, right? Um, and that would go a long way. <laughs> to thinking about what is the actual situation. You know, if, if we uh, turned off Facebook tomorrow and we shut down Twitter for six months and we organized a whole bunch of town hall facilitated small group conversations and just force people <laughs> to speak, to be reasonable uh, with one another. And again, here I'm being utopian that this could even happen. But I think you'd find that, you know, there's a lot of contrived polarization and that there's a lot of attention capture uh, that is actually distracting people from what they already know, which is that, in fact, we're stuck in this <laughs> together and 
we're either going to scapegoat one another or we're going to have to cooperate. Right now, we're obviously prefer scapegoating. Um, and I think until we start to get changes in the way the digital is used as far as communication and things of that nature, we may stay there. You know, Facebook was built on Girardian principles, right? Built to propagate mimetic desire and mimetic violence. And the outcome of those are scapegoating processes. So there's something that needs to be rethought at the level of the basic structures of our society with regards to communication and collective choice, uh, collective choice making. So yeah, so now I'm kind of rambling in this direction of just what the kind of basic practices and rituals of a future civilization that could actually exist in perpetuity would be. Let's well, let's hold that one off for our next episode. Yeah. I'll point out Ezra Klein has written a very interesting book called Why We Are Polarized, which basically takes a complex systems perspective on how this polarization that's tearing us apart is really emergent. And while there have certainly been people who've intentionally thrown gasoline on the fire, a lot of it is structural. For example, here we did a blind experiment starting in 2010 of giving everybody a supercomputer in their pocket with a high-res screen connected to the internet and give them many-to-many communication tools to talk to anybody on the planet anytime they want. And guess what? One of the emergent phenomena of that is to accelerate polarization. So there's no doubt about it that there are sort of many, many serious systems issues that are probably not even consciously designed, but are, you know, driven by the attractors of our current system, such as my old favorite short-term money on money return, right? You can look through the magnifying glass of what is motivating short-term money on money return in the behavior of Facebook, and that is to sell more advertising, which means hijacking more attention for longer periods of time. And that then says, well, select more extreme content to put in front of people because they pay more attention to extreme content and we're just fucked right and so we have to go quite far down the rabbit hole to fix things so you know unfortunately you know listening to you talk about how to decide who decides i came away saying hmm, classic chicken and the egg problem we need better education to figure out how to decide who decides about what goes into education so this is not going to be easy no not at all and the chicken and the egg problem with educational reform has always existed because in a, in a democracy, in a place where the collective needs to have some input on what happens, then you need to actually, you know, change the educational system enough to get people to be sophisticated voters to change the education system even more to get like so. There's this uh, you can't how do you bootstrap uh, the reform of an educational system um, if it's truly failed? Then the very people trying to bootstrap it would be already incapacitated by the failure of that educational system. And so that's why there's this like kind of death spiral that you get into when the education system starts to kind of decompose and is subject to institutional decay, you get into a death spiral. And so this is one of the things we're stuck in. When you damage teacherly authority, then it gets harder to reestablish it. Then you become basically incapacitated by the absence of it. And then it gets, you know, so it's, it's it's self-propelling. And this is one of the reasons, frankly, why the United States public education system has been the, the hobby horse of wealthy industrial philanthropists since its inception, more or less, because there's been a sense of like, well, well then the smart ones need to take responsibility <laughs> uh, for the educational system. So yeah, we are in a difficult situation. Now, what you said about the, the computer in everyone's pocket and that 
breeding polarization. Yeah. Again, um, it's the digital came fast and furious with very specific and I think limited near-term motivations, as you were saying, uh, money on money, uh, making profit. So I don't think we actually know what the true affordances of the digital are. I think this is one of the, like the key learning processes we're in during this historical epoch. For a variety of reasons, we've gone the way we've gone with the potentialities of the digital. But as I was trying to note with the digital back end of the educational hub network that I talk about in my book, the digital could actually be used to completely up-level the nature of our social life without capturing our attention. Um, it could actually focus our attention in collaboration with others better, right? Um, so yeah, in a, in a sense, I think uh, one of the solutions here is actually really seriously rethinking the the way digital technology is integrated into civilizational design and basically kind of making an argument that we've kind of taken the wrong path with a lot of the ways we've been bringing the digital into our culture. Um, I've mentioned the screens in particular, but there's also the emphasis as, as you mentioned on oversaturation of advertisement and um, asymmetric capacity to influence choice making, uh, which is to say like, you know, I'm just Zach. I don't have a whole team of, you know, AI programmers working for me, but Facebook does. <laughs> and so I sit alone in front of my screen without really thinking that on the back end, there is, uh, you know, kind of millions, maybe billions of dollars going into basically manipulating me. And so that, that's not what the digital is. That's what we've done with the digital. So yeah, so part of this like problem of the who figures out what to teach and how do we do collective choice making and these things, it, it, really the onus is on us to start thinking about this technology in a different way. Um, and it may be that we've made systematic mistakes, right? If you think about like Tesla and Edison, you know, it's like we could have done electricity very differently than we did it, right? You think about Buckminster Fuller's that interesting map of the world that he made. And he showed that you could have an electrical, a planetary electrical grid, you know, like, and so again, when we lay down basic infrastructures back to Rawls, when you do the thought experiment of what should this basic infrastructure look like, this new civilization enabling infrastructure, what should it look like? You need to think about that. You don't just roll it out in the way that's going to make you the most money as quickly as possible, but this is what we've done. And so we have to build up from a lot of layers, which we'll talk about next time. So I think on that point, we will wrap it up here. And as we have decided that we have so much interesting stuff to cover that we're going to have Zach back for part three, where we're going we're gonna to look at the chapter on religion and religious teacherly authority. And we're going to then go deep on, which we've mentioned a couple times in passing, Zach's ideas about the 13 social miracles that together with reforming education, essentially, frankly, co-evolving with education, maybe we can solve the meta-crisis. So with that, Zach, thanks for coming back a second time. I look forward to talking to you a third time. Yeah, me too. This is a lot of fun, man. I appreciate it. 
Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.